Hey Christ Community Church, my name is Andy and this is Andrea and we are so excited to welcome you here to CCC this weekend, uh, a place where really anyone can get connected. And, and one of the easiest ways that you can get connected if you're here with us in person this weekend is you can stop by our welcome desk out front in the atrium uh, and grab a connection card and fill that out. Uh, we've got a fun little gift for you just to say, hey, we're glad you're here and, and we're excited to celebrate with you. So um, go check that out. We'd love to get you connected. And if you're joining us online, we would also love to connect with you. And so um, on our online services, you can click the new here um, button and we'd love to get some information from you to be able to connect and get you plugged into the life of the yeah. church here. Um, and one of our values here at Christ Community is legacy. And so we really desire to see um, future generations be built as disciples that are making disciples that are making disciples. And so we really value our children and our students. And one of the ways that you can be a part of Legacy is for our parents out there, if you have um, littles that you're wanting to dedicate, we have our child dedication weekend coming up June 19th and 20th, so just in a few weeks. Um, and this is really your commitment saying, yes, I'm going to raise um, this child in a way that shows the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus. And we as a church um, can come alongside you in that mm -hmm. as well. So this Sunday, June 6th, is the last day to sign up. So parents, if you're interested in, them, in that, be sure to head to our website um, on the kids page and you can get signed up there. Yeah, legacy is incredibly important here at CCC and Andrea and I actually both have the privilege of serving on the family ministries team here. And so another way that we're celebrating legacy this weekend is we are celebrating our graduating high school seniors. Uh, and we just wanna say congratulations to you guys, uh, despite all the craziness of this past couple years in the world trying to beat you down and stop you from making it, you made it and we're so incredibly proud of you and really excited yeah. to see what God is gonna do in the adult season of your life. I mean, you have such an opportunity in front of you to go out uh, and to pursue really anything. And so uh, we're proud of you, we're excited for you and uh, we just wanna say congratulations. Way to go, class of 2021. We're so excited to see um, what God has in store for you in this future. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're gonna be entering into a time of worship. So we would just invite you wherever you're at, just to lean in um, and give all of the glory and praise to the Lord. All right, church, we'll stand together as we give praise to our God today.
Of my life, Christ be magnified. 
song that we're about to sing, um, I just love the reminders that it has that we just, we have this huge God that is almighty, all powerful, all just full of glory, that even creation and the mountains tremble to how big this God is. Yet, at the same time, the same God wants to have a personal relationship with each one of us, each one of us that are here today. And I just, I love that reminder because sometimes God can feel so big that there's, there's no way that such a big God would wanna have that kind of relationship with somebody that's like me. I don't know if anybody else here in this room feels the same way, but how grateful it is to have a God like that. And I don't know what you are walking into this room with today or if you're walking into your living room today, that we are not defined by the struggles or the sins that we are dealing with when we put our trust into Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Because of what Christ has done on the cross for each of us, our chains have been broken and they were left in that empty grave. 
you were left there. So that is something that we don't need to be holding on our shoulders because he has taken care of that for us. And he didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for Jason here to be perfect. He did it before because he loves each one of us so much. And I don't know about you, church, but I think we have a reason to celebrate and worship today. You agree with that? All right, so we're gonna continue to praise our God today.
thankful for that truth, that you are the Lord, that we can put our trust in you and know that everything is in control in your hands. Our lives might feel crazy around us, but ultimately we have faith in you and we can put our trust in you that we know that you are gonna take care of us, God. We don't need to depend in what's going on in this world. We can't, we need to lean into you, God. And we thank you that you are God that is so present in our lives. Just a reminder that you speak in a whisper because you are so close. We thank you so much for that, God. We thank you for the way that you love us, Father. We just continue to worship you today. We worship you through your word, God. We thank you for your word that you continue to to speak through your word today. Today, you continue to speak through that word and you can speak to us differently through that word, God. And we are so thankful that we have that, God. So we're gonna go into that together. And we give you today. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, you all can go ahead and take a seat. Hi, my name is Pastor Greg. I'm one of the guy, pastors here, and I have the privilege of sharing with you today as Daryl's taking a much-needed break and seeing family uh, down south in Hickville. <clears throat> Thank you. It's good to be here today. And uh, it's been a nice week, hasn't it? I'm serious. I, I'll, take, I'll take the weather right now. I, I kind of like it. Um, but... Uh, I love spring, and I was here for a couple days, and um, enjoying the summer now. I want to show you some pictures that are beautiful, um, some pictures of a scenic railway that you will find in Thailand. Um, it's breathtaking, the views. Uh, this particular railway is 258 miles long, and not, it's not all being used uh, uh, now, but only about 18, I think 118 miles of it's being used. There are beautiful trailways. This used to be a railroad track, and they've turned it into uh, just a walking path, and they've got just some beautiful, uh, beautiful picks. And the thing that makes it interesting, if you saw those picks and you didn't know the history behind it, you'd think it'd be a place that you want to go that would be very serene. But the history behind it is horrific. The year was 1942. The Second World War was raging around the globe. Thailand had chosen to be neutral, but soon they find themselves occupied by Japanese forces. And the Jap Japanese wanted their area, wanted to be in control because they had a plan. And the plan was revolved around the fact that Thailand's proximity to the British colony of Burma made uh, Thailand a perfect place for Japanese, for Japanese forces to gather together in order to launch offenses against Britain. And Japan set out to do this. They set out to build a railway from Thailand to Burma. And to do so, they would need to cut through dense jungles in the mountains, the terrain of Thailand. And construction began in 1942. Now, they were going to need a lot of manpower to get the project done, and they had an idea. So what they did is they hired about a quarter of a million Southeast Asians. Once they showed up work, they became slaves. They had slave labor. 
but they need some more. And so what they did is they went to all of their concentration camps, their prison war camps, uh, where they had 60,000 POWs from a variety of allied countries. The work was heartbreaking. It was backbreaking, often without necessary tools. The prisoners were malnourished, maltreated, exhausted, working in 120-degree weather in 18-hour days. It was really deplorable. They succumbed to diseases which easily spread, given that they were forced to live in squalor and they were working without basic hygiene. Due to the physical nature of the work and with food in short supply, starvation was a real and daily threat. Prisoners survived on little as 600 calories a day. On top of that, they were harassed and brutalized by their captors. But here's what I want you to catch. Over 113,000 men died during the 16-month construction. And it became known as Death Railway. Let me repeat that. 113,000 men died in just 16 months. Let me break that down for you. That's roughly 235 men dying each day, 1,645 a week, over 7,000 a month to build this railway. It is believed that one worker died for each wooden sleeper that was laid for the track. Now, I didn't know what a wooden sleeper is, but this is what it is. You know what it is. It's what we call a railroad tie or a railroad cross tie, and it's a rectangular support for railroad tracks. If you've ever walked on the railroad and you walk between the rails, it would be the board that you either stepped on or stepped over as you were walking along the tracks. And one man died for each wooden sleeper. And again, to give you an idea what that looks like, if, from where I'm sitting right now, if you would get on a circle drive and go one mile to the east, you would come to Calvary Evangelical Free Church. That means that you would see, the railway is 258 miles long, for every mile of completed railway, 426 men died. That means from here to Evangelical Free Church, you would see 426 bodies Head, toe, head, toe, all the way there. The railway was 258 miles long. That's roughly the distance, by the way, from here, from Rochester to Duluth. And that means if you drove that distance, if you can frame this up, you would see one body for every six to eight feet for 258 miles. That's roughly 113,000 lives lost. And yet, it was there, it was there in this terrible time, in this terrible place, that a miracle occurred. And it happened because one man at a critical moment stepped in, stepped up, and sacrificially gave of himself. And that act would be pivotal. And for those prisoners, it would change everything. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we... Uh, we have it pretty comfortable. And even talking about these things that are so far behind us, but yet a part of our history, it's hard to embrace that and hard to really frame that. The lives lost, many unknown, buried in shallow graves throughout the jungle. Men who were 
fathers and brothers and serving their country. And Father, we are gonna be talking about, again, a little bit about what it means to be a servant of yours. And so my prayer is, is that a lot of us, we have stuff on our tray that we brought in with us today, and I pray that we'd be able to put that on the back burner and then be able to just focus on what you wanna say to us. And so we just wanna say, your servants are listening, please speak, because we could use a fresh word from you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna read from Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna read from um, the message and we're gonna, I'm gonna read it to you and then I'm gonna ask you to join me as we read the last few verses. And this is what it says, okay? Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? Here's another way to put it. You are here to be light, bringing out the God colors in this world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. And I have to stop there. We're going public with this. We've seen this concept of going public with this faith. A few weeks ago, we had a baptism service, and we had people who stood behind the mic and got baptized, and they were saying, I'm all in. I'm going public with this. A week or so later, we had the Minnesota, gals from Minnesota Teen Challenge, their choir. Several of them shared their testimonies of how God transformed and is at work in their lives, and they said, we're going what? Public with this. Last Tuesday, uh, I had a funeral for a gentleman from our church. His name was Mark. I think he was 45. Been battling cancer for three years. He was told in the hospital the day I got to see him three years ago that he would be lucky to have three to six months, and God gave him three years, and he was grateful. But he left a wife of 21 years behind and three kids. And Daryl and I went to see him just a couple of days before he started to really go south. And I had been with him a couple different times, praying as these days were getting shorter for him. And the time here was becoming less. And Daryl just started the conversation with something like this. You know, it's gotta be really tough, this journey you're on. You've been praying for healing. You've been praying that God would give you more time. And it looks like he is not. I'll bet you maybe you're a little bit bitter with that. How are you, and Daryl then follows up, how are you with the Lord? Now, Mark was sitting in, a, in, in the dark in, in his uh, couch. He was really becoming frail and weaker, and he was kind of hunched over. But when Daryl said, how are you doing with the Lord? He set himself up, threw his shoulders back, and looked Daryl dead in the eye, and he said, I love the Lord. And he wanted to make sure that we said that. Why? Because he was going public with this. I had the privilege of doing a wedding up at St. Peter uh, last night, and Jason did the music, and this couple, one of the things they wanted to do right at the very beginning of the wedding was to declare and go public with this. We want Christ to be here in the center of this ceremony, the center of our marriage, and the center of our home. You are here to, bring, to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this as public as a city on a hill. And if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm gonna hide you under a bucket, do you? And then I want you to read these words with me out loud, if you would. 
I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on the light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you will prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. We're going public with this. There's a document that's in my office, and, and I have a computer there, and I can see it to my left. It's on a, a cork board, and I look at it often. And it's basically a reminder of what my real job is. And there's several things that I've listed on that over the years, and I add to it every so often. And here's just a few of the statements on that document. I am God's servant. It's not about me. I'm not nearly as important as I think I am. I am and will be expendable in God's economy. My best work will be forgotten within months of my departure. If I am a servant, then he will increase and I will decrease. And when I'm done and gone, it's God's work in others that they will remember and me not so much, if at all. And that's okay and that's right because I'm his servant. Let me show you what that looks like. There's this guy, his name was John. Uh, God comes to John and says, I've got a job for you to do, and it's gonna be short term. God makes it clear, it's not gonna be easy, it's gonna be short term, it's just for a season, and then I'm gonna push you aside. But I need you to do it, would you be willing? And John says, sure thing. And so things start out kind of slow for John, he gains momentum, but quickly, all of a sudden, he becomes the big man on campus, all right? And things were going really well. People were packing it in. He had a huge following. He was center stage, front page, the talk of the town. He was a big, big deal. And then this guy, Jesus, shows up. Jesus comes along, and it doesn't take any time at all, and Jesus takes both the spotlight, and the stage. So John's inner circle, because he's got this entourage, and he got this inner circle where he really believes in his gifts, his lead team, if you please, comes to him and they say, John, you gotta do something. And they plead the case. They said, John, come on, maybe you could be opening act for Jesus. You know, kind of the Ed McMahon, and then here's Jesus, okay? And and they're pushing on that, and John will have none of it. And if you go to the text in John 3, starting with the 27th verse, John has a five-bullet <laughs> response to their urging. And this is what he says, and it's there in Scripture. He says this, a man can only receive what is given him from heaven. This was just for a season. I told you I was not the Christ. That I told you that I was just sent to prepare the way for the Christ. He's the groom, I'm gonna be at the wedding, it'll be good to see him, good to hear him, but I'm not even really in the wedding party. And then he says something along this lines, it pleased my heart to have just a bit part in it all. Actually what he says is this, that joy is mine and it is now complete. Okay, he's God's servant, does his thing, fulfills his time, Finished his contract, and then he says these words, and you've said them often here. He says this in John 3.30, he must become greater, 
and I must become less than. And John's seasonal job is over. And he's retired, okay? And, you know, most of us know when somebody retires, they get a party, some food, and a gold watch. John, not so much. John, not so much. He, he uh, really takes that less than to the nth degree. Because if you know the story, he becomes headless. He does what God wants him to do, does it well, and when it's done, he's killed. They remove his head. I have a mug, and I've shared this before. I love this mug, and I was nervous that they might drop it. I've had it for years. And, and it has this thing, and, when it, it, and it says on the bottom, it says this, Christ must increase, and I must decrease. This is the very cup that we are to drink from continually, every day, and often. This cup. It's not about me. It's about to be about Jesus. Now, it's funny even to phrase that. I've got it backwards. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. If, I think if we're honest, all of us struggle with an ongoing problem, and the problem is me. And some of you are saying, yes, Greg, you are the problem. That was a rhetorical question for everybody, okay? And I am, the, I am a problem, I got it. But we all have the problem of me. We have this built-in tendency, don't we, to get in the way and to want our way. Tim Keller says it this way, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. And then he says this, please don't be offended, because it's his words, it sucks when I become the me monster. The mandate that we've been given is he must increase, I must decrease. I've used this gadget before. It's a, a boomerang. Somebody was a little bit scared. Donnie asked me, see, you're not going to throw it, are you? Because somebody will get hurt. No. But what I did is I painted it white. And this is kind of a mathematical symbol that we've used here before. I've used it once before. And it's basically a symbol uh, that, that says things like this. This is less than and this is greater than. You remember that? This is greater than and I am less than. And what that means spiritually is, I am less than, and God has to be greater than, okay? And the bottom line is, is that was John the Baptist, because this guy's name was John, that was John the Baptist's mantra. Jesus is greater than, and I am less than. And we've said this before. I run out of things to say, so I'm repeating myself a lot now. Um, <laughs> humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. We see this stated in Romans 12 twice, within seven verses. Do not, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. And then seven, layers, seven verses later, it says, honor one another above yourself. Less than, honor them above yourself, greater than. I am less than, they are greater than. The posture of humility, this posture, is to play out in all of life, in all of our relationships, in all of our endeavors. It means that because Christ has come into our lives and we want to model what he modeled, then we become other-centered. We take this less-than posture. That's something that we have to do in marriage. Uh, at this wedding, they were all about making sure that they, people knew, I am here to serve you. 
It has to happen in our families. That means respecting parents. They are greater than. Respecting your siblings, even if you think they're demon-possessed. They are greater than, okay? In our church, that's what it means when we say what? We want to love each other and serve our neighbors. That's taking a less than posture. At work, if you're the boss, that means you take a less than and you serve your employees. If you're an employee, you take a less than and serve your boss and serve the person in the cubicle next to you. At school, it means you honor the administration, you honor your teachers, you honor your fellow students, you take a less than posture. In sports, it's about team, and when I have the opportunity to speak to athletes, one of the things I do is I get this thing out, and I say, you've gotta take this position, it's not about you, and what can you do to help improve the game of the person next to you? Do we struggle with this less than posture? Yes, one person I know very well said it this way, it sucks for me and for my family and for everyone else when I take a more than posture. That was my quote. Okay, just in case, you, in case you missed it. Humility means I take a posture of less than. Here it is. Serve each other in humility, less than. Serving others requires forgetfulness on your part. You need to forget your needs. Why? Less than. Helen Keller said there is joy in self-forgetfulness, less than. One person said you cannot be self-centered and serve the real needs of another unless what? You take a less than position. Paul says in Philippians 2, don't be selfish, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself, less than. Jesus gave the ultimate example, and I had the opportunity to share that with you a couple weeks back. It says, so during the meal, Jesus stood up and took off his outer clothing. Taking a towel, he wrapped it around his waist. Then he poured water into a bowl and began to wash the followers' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. This is the guest of the feast, and he takes what? A less than position. Foot washing was customary back then. It wasn't about, just about pedicures. People wore sandals. They walked on dusty roads. Usually, the guest of honor or the host would have one of their servants do this dirty chore. But Jesus saved this service for himself, taking the very nature of a servant, Less than. It's interesting to note, by the way, that the disciples hadn't already taken care of their dirty feet issue, not even slipping into a self-service scrub. And I think it's worth noting, could it be that the disciples considered that task beneath their dignity? That sounds like greater than. But Jesus, this wasn't beneath Jesus that was less than. And he placed his disciples' needs above his own even as he approached his darkest hour less than. Again, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. What is up with that? What does he mean? Two things. Jesus is making a statement of your tremendous worth. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about influence. This is part of that, you are salt, you have influence. This is a different thing. This is salt and salt has value. In Jesus' day, salt had more of a central value in daily life. They discovered that salt could be used to slow down the decay of food. Hence, salt could serve as a preservative and food could be stored, what? For famine. 
be stored ahead. Salt became, because of that, a very important commodity. It had significant value. It was used as currency. It was good as cash. The Romans used salt to pay their workers. They didn't hand them dollars and cents. They handed them bags of salt. Okay? In fact, the Latin word for salt actually is sal, which we get the word salary from. And we've heard, you've heard the saying, he is worth their salt. That means he is worth their just due. They've earned it. They have value. A guy named Mark Kalansky wrote a book entitled Salt, A World History, and it was a New York bestseller. He said that salt was one of the common factors that provoked or financed wars. Like some countries have done over the years with oil and with gold. And that's one of the reasons when one country attacks another country, we say they've been assaulted. Okay, I just made that up. But anyway, <laughs> just want to see if you're there. Truth is, we do say things like this. We say, you are the apple of my eye. You are diamond in the rough. You're a precious jewel. You're worth a million bucks. You're worth your weight in gold, okay? So when Jesus says, you are salt, he is the salt of the earth. He's saying, we, like we talked a couple weeks ago, but we didn't talk about the salt piece, that you have tremendous influence. But here he's saying as well, you are his child, his son, his daughter, his followers, and you are highly prized. You are a, pre a precious treasure. You're valued. You're the hope of the world. It's an affirming statement of how loved and how valuable you are in the world in which you live. But here's the point I want to make, the second point about salt. Don't miss this. Salt's calling is to lose itself to something bigger than itself. No one says, man, I'm so hungry, I think I'm gonna go home and grill up some salt. Nobody says that. I'm so starved, I, starved, I can't wait to get home and have a loaf of salt. No, I'm a saltaholic, I just want you to know. That kind of sounds good to me. Um, but no, that's not the purpose of salt. The purpose of salt is to give itself to enhance or bring something bigger than itself, to bring something out bigger than itself. The message says this, let me tell you why you're here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. And if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? That's a lot of talking. But I want you to take a breath because I want to show you one story that I came across some time ago and I've been saving this story about how this works in, in a terrible and horrific place at a difficult time. During World War II, a British officer was captured by the Japanese and he was taken as prisoner and found, soon found himself on a ship and sent to a very large labor camp. It was there that he and thousands of other prisoners were forced to build a railway through the most difficult jungle and terrain in Thailand. Some know it as the Burma Railway, some know it as Burma-Thailand Railway, but historians and those who survived it called it Death Railway. A book was written about it and then a movie uh, that you might be familiar with entitled Bridge Over River Kwai. There was a lot of, by the way, at the time when that movie was released, there was an upheaval, a very strong sediment against that movie from those who were there because they said the movie was too soft about how hard and horrific it was, especially the brutality of their captors. 
The work conditions were absolutely deplorable. It was horrific, and even that's an understatement. Get this, if a prisoner seemed to be slacking off, it was common for a guard to beat him and to beat him to death, or worse yet, decapitate him in front of the other prisoners. And when the body fell, that's where they stayed, and they would have to, that day, navigate around the body, remembering, I better work or I might die. And that was a daily occurrence. I already told you, something like 230 men a day died. The prisoners worked until they dropped or until they were so sick they were too weak to work. And if that happened, they had this place, this little shack was called the death house. And they would take them there and there wasn't enough room in that shack for everyone. And so you would either die in the shack, but usually what happened, they would just lay you out in front of the shack where you would literally roast to death in 120 degree heat. The prisoners who did survive lived like animals. It was indeed every man for himself. This is what one man wrote. This is his words. Now I want to read the quote to you. For most of the war, the law of the jungle had ruled in the prison camp. Disease, exhaustion, starvation took an ever-increasing toll. The atmosphere in which we lived became poisoned by fear, hate, and selfishness. We were slipping rapidly down the slope of degradation. Before, the patterns of army life had sustained us. We had still shown some consideration for each other, but that was now all swept away. Existence had become so miserable that the, and the odds so heavy against survival that to most of the prisoners, nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the law of the jungle, the law of the survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. For most of us, little acts of favoritism, meanness, suspicion permeated our lives. In the food line, prisoners fought over the few scraps of vegetables or grains of rice floating in the greasy broth. Officers refused to share any of their special rations. Theft was common in the barracks. Men lived like animals, and hate was the main motivation to stay alive, even with each other. And then these words. We had no church. No chaplain, no services. We were forsaken men, forsaken by our friends, our families, our government. Now even God seemed to have left us. And that was their lot. Every day a living hell and every man for himself until one day. One day, one man changed everything. It was just another exhausting long day. The men lined up as they did at the end of their day. Their captors would take inventory. And after a count of supplies, a Japanese guard informed the lead guard that a shovel was missing. missing, And that guy in charge demanded to know who stole it, stole it and no one confessed. So all the prisoners, he grabbed them and he, started, he lined up the first 20 and he pulled out his gun. He cocked the, the pistol and said this, if you don't tell me who you are who took this shovel, I will shoot a man every minute until you confess. And then a man stepped forward and he said, it was me. I took the shovel. Wanting to send a message that wouldn't be forgotten, the guard put away his pistol. He had a rifle handed to him, and he proceeded to beat that soldier to death with the butt of the gun. He was so mad and upset that he continued to beat that prisoner 
for a half hour after he'd already been dead. Now, while he was doing that, they had another inventory just checking, and it was found that a mistake was made and there was no shovel missing after all. He confessed to save lives. And that selfless act did something to that camp. This is a true story. The men walked back, they were dismissed, they walked back to their, their barracks and no one spoke. In the darkness, it, it was complete silent as they got into their bunks. And there, it was, the silence was deafening and then a man began to speak and he said these words, greater love has no man than this. Then he who lays down his life for a friend. Who, who does that? Who does that? He did. And that one man's sacrifice set into motion a rippling effect of change within that camp. Things were never the same again. Prisoners began treating each other with respect and compassion, especially those who were dying. Now when a prisoner died, instead of just tossing the body into the jungle, they were given a funeral, they were buried, and a cross marked their grave. The strong began to help those who were weak. Men began to give up their food rations for those who were sick. One man by the name of Ernest, who was paralyzed by fever, was laid in the death shack, outside the death shack to die. And he knew that his death was imminent, he was tired, he was willing to go. He was writing a last letter to his parents before he fell into unconsciousness. That night, some men from his barracks snuck in, they pulled him out, they found him some water, they shared some of the food they had saved, they took turns massaging his leg muscles in order to get and keep the circulation going. They cleaned his latrine, and they nursed him back to health. Now, up to that point, Ernest was just living like all the others in camp, living and surviving for self. But now, because of their kindness, he began to sense something happening, not only in the camp, but within himself. He began to think about God for the first time that he could ever remember. Why? Because somebody cared for him when he couldn't take care of himself and they did so at great risk and cost. Seeking answers, he began to be spending a lot of time thinking about growing up as a child and going to church. And he had thought little about God for years, but he would later say this, faith thrives when there is no hope but God. And it wasn't long before Gordon's life was literally transformed through faith in Christ. A group of men formed a little church and Ernest became their first unofficial chaplain, a brand new believer. From that little band, a garden was planted to grow medicinal plants to help those who were sick and suffering. They started a school called Jungle University. They started teaching things like history, philosophy, and science in nine different languages. Why? Because that was the number of languages in the prison camp. One man who took a less than posture saved the lives of countless others. I love this. Where once there had been only death, now there was life. Where once there had only been despair, now there was hope. And Jesus had a word for that. Salt. Salt. 
a kingdom life was raised up in the most peculiar place. These men, because of one man's kindness, became so transformed, hear this, when liberating armies came to the rescue, they did not turn in vengeance on their guards with hate and violence. In fact, they chose to treat their enemies with kindness, mercy, and respect. In fact, giving them health and aid for those who were sick and injured. Not only that, they did something that nobody thought they would ever do. They forgive their captors. That man, Ernest, is Ernest Goodman. His life was so transformed in the jungles of Thailand that afterward he became a pastor. He never forgot how one man's life, a selfless act, caused a positive domino effect among men who had lost all hope and had turned on one another. It's amazing. This is what's weird. The man who stepped forward and said he stole the shovel, no one could recall his name. No one. I said a couple of weeks ago, don't underestimate your reach. You'll never know what God might do down the road. Know that if you do the right thing at the right time, you might never be remembered on this side of eternity, but I promise you that on the other side, you will hear words, good, well done, faithful servant. Ernest never forgot him, and for the rest of his life, he always referred to that man as this, the salt of the earth. We here at Christ Community Church are to be salt. Wherever it is that we're placed, your home, your neighborhood, here, at work, on the street, at the store. And the biblical mandate and our calling card ought to be this verse, give yourselves to God. Surrender your whole being to him to be used for his righteous purpose. Salt. Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. He didn't say you are becoming. He didn't say you could be. He didn't say you might be one day. He said you are the salt of the earth. He must increase. We must decrease. He must become greater than. We must become less than. Today. Here. And now. Let's pray. Such a simple truth, salt, and yet you call us the salt of the earth, and sometimes, Father, we don't feel like that. Some of us would readily admit life's not been easy for some of us. We've been disappointed, we've been hurt, we've been betrayed, we've made mistakes, we shot ourselves in the feet, sometimes we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, and when we do it, we think it's an oncoming train. But Father, when we... When our life crosses paths with your life, we are transformed. And it might not be immediate, but it is going to happen because we become your child, your son, your daughter, a, a treasured possession, a gift, salt. So Father, I pray that we would live that way, that we would take the opportunity to be life-giving hope in a world that many times is dark. Help us to be that for each other and for the world that you placed us in. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Have a great week.